Last week, I attended the policy conference of the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. In reflecting on that conference, I thought it might be useful to give a podcast that not only explains what I saw there, but also the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship, and also some things that we can learn from APAC about how to effectively operate in the American political environment. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, professor of government here at the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either the Robertson School or Regent University as a whole. You can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider to include iTunes, Spotify, etc. I believe we're on Google Podcasts, probably Stitcher, and, and a few others. And remember that you can follow us on social media. That's Blind Politics on Facebook, Blind Politics on Instagram, and Blind P-O-L Nolte on Twitter. So, last week I attended the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, policy conference, what they call Policy 2020. It's 18,000 people from a variety of different backgrounds, a variety of different uh, institutional and organizational affiliations, and almost every partisan position you could think of across the United States. Now, it's funny to attend a conference like this as a political scientist, because on one hand, you're participating, but on the other hand, you're also kind of an observer. And on the third hand, you're looking at the relationship between what you're attending and what people have written about it, and particularly political scientists. Okay? And as I was attending the APAC conference, I was put in mind of a really bad book <laughs> that was written by a couple of political scientists called The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. And this was written by two international relations theorists named Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer. And it's it's bad. I mean, it's there's, there's no sugarcoating it. Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer essentially wrote a book that tried to explain away why the United States was not following their theory of how the how it should behave. And their explanation was the disproportionate influence of Israel on domestic politics. This is particularly hilarious because both of them come from a school of foreign policy analysis or international relations analysis. This is the domestic, poli- domestic politics shouldn't matter. Okay, so on the one hand, they're saying domestic politics shouldn't matter, and this is the way theoretically things should work. But then when things don't work the way they say they should, they revert back to this theory about how you know the nefarious influence of the Israel lobby is convincing the United States to, to do things that are not actually in its foreign policy interests. Where does this come from? One hand, Stephen Waltz has been saying dumb things about the Middle East since the 1980s. He said in the 1980s that Israel was not a democracy, which is incorrect. He seems to get most of his actual knowledge about the Middle East from Matt Iglesias, who writes for a Talking Points Memo, who is, you know, not really an expert. And, you know, he, he buys into a lot of the, the lines coming from more left-wing academic institutions like the Middle East Studies Association that sort of have a de facto anti-Israel bias, a de facto bias in, in their scholarship that is very much toward the left. And this happens in a lot of area studies uh, departments at universities for a variety of reasons, which we don't necessarily need to get into. So, what is the Israel lobby, quote-unquote? And of course, it's not just political scientists that are scaremongering about this. Just about every internet conspiracy theory uh, out there has some connection to it's all about uh, Israel, it's all about you know the sort of Jewish lobby or, or, or whatever. And it's totally nuts. But where does this come from? And what, in fact, is the Israel lobby? So where does this come from? It comes from the fact that the United States has had an enduring alliance with Israel for decades. 
And that doesn't make sense to a certain segment of the American population. It doesn't make sense to people who, uh, first of all, you have some who are just anti-Semitic to begin with. And that, you know, that is what it is. It's, it's a certain percentage. And that has always been toward a more conspiratorial mindset. Second of all, it, doesn't make, it, it is uh, anathema to some on the left who see Israel as a colonial, post-colonial state that's oppressing colonized people. Never mind the fact that, you know, Israel, the, the Zionists who were first living there were living under colonial rule as well. <laughs> so the idea that Israel is a this sort of post-colonial state and they're, they're a, neo, or a neo-colonial state. If Israel is a neo-colonial state, then I would say two-thirds, if not most, of the states in, in the Arab Middle East and Africa are also colonial states because by the standards of, of what people are complaining about Israel doing, just about every state that has come out of colonialism has done that to in many cases, worse than, than what Israel is r- routinely accused of doing to its ethnic minorities. And so, you know, there there is definitely a standard that is applied to Israel that is not applied to certainly other Arab states with their treatment of the Kurds. It's certainly not applied to many of the states in Africa with their treatment of some of their minorities. It certainly is not applied to China with their treatment of the Uyghurs. <laughs> not to harp on something that we talked about before, but you know, the same people who can muster up all of this outrage about the Palestinians not being allowed to cross into certain areas. And, you know, we can talk about whether what Israel is doing is, is problematic. This is not to justify everything that Israel does. But when you're talking on and on and on about how horrible that is, and you can't even muster up a tweet about how China's putting millions of Muslims in, camp, in camps, it sort of decreases your credibility um, to talk on that issue. So, you know, yes, you can condemn both. Right? If you're condemning both, you're consistent. That's fine. You're, you're going to condemn everybody's human rights abuses. But if you cannot be bothered to talk about what China's doing, to talk about what Middle East, other Middle Eastern dictatorships are doing, you know, to talk about what countries in, in other parts of the world are doing, and all you can be bothered to talk about is, is Israel, I don't actually believe that you care about human rights. <laughs> I, I think that you care about one specific situation, but you don't care about human rights. You care about a very specific subset. You care about the one state that happens to be from a certain ethnicity. You care about the one state that happens to be in a certain region of the world that's not, you know, dominated by another religion, whatever it might be. So there is that. I think the other component is that, and this is maybe where more some of the Walt and Mearsheimer folks come in, is that if you believe international relations should operate on a certain plane, if you believe in the idea that States do not have permanent allies. They only have permanent interests. There's no such thing as an actual permanent alliance. And you should never tie yourself to a weaker state because then they'll pull you into a war or a conflict that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily be pulled into. And you essentially believe that that's how international relations works. And that's the most serious mistake that states make. You don't have to be an anti-Semite or, you know, someone who's in one of these crazy left-wing post-colonial, you know, double standard theories that, that, you know, tend to dominate academic discourse where everything is a noun, a verb, and colonialism. You don't have to be in that mindset to, to see Israel as a, a problematic alliance. And, you know, I would say my response to that is just they're wrong about how international relations works. They're wrong about the idea that weaker states are always a detriment to stronger states in terms of an alliance. And finally, they're wrong about how the U.S.-Israel alliance emerged. So before I talk about APAC specifically, let me try to set the record straight a little bit on how the alliance between the U.S. and Israel emerged. There were a couple of myths. Myth number one, the the U.S. was always anti-Arab and always pro-Israel since 1948. That's wrong. That is factually inaccurate. Yes, the United States recognized Israel very early and provided some aid, but it was not a consistent ally of Israel because of the Cold War. The U.S. was trying to win over Arab states during the Cold War to their side and not to the Soviet side. 
Okay, the classic example of this is actually the Suez Crisis. It's the British and the French that intervene on the side of Israel in the Suez Crisis against Egypt and seize the Suez Canal. And it's the United States under the Eisenhower administration that brokers a ceasefire and gets them to pull out and pull back. Okay, that was an unambiguously, a move that unambiguously benefited the Arabs and benefited the Arab states. Why? A couple of reasons. One, the State Department was dominated at the time by what were called Arabists, people in the Middle East who had sort of Middle Eastern ties that went back generations and, you know, family ties to the State Department that went back generations. And so these people were very sympathetic to and, and supportive of the Arabs. And Robert Kaplan's book, The Arabists, Romance of an American Elite, chronicles this in excruciating detail. Second was the emerging oil relationship, which is very important for the United States. The United States had a relationship with the Gulf countries, with the Gulf states, with Saudi Arabia, with what was in the Kingdom of Iraq, with the other oil-producing states. And this was seen as very important to U.S. power projection. Israel was a tiny, tiny country of half a million people. And so it was not seen as the kind of power player that could balance the Arab states. Right? So this balance of power approach that Walt and Mearsheimer and others are arguing for the United States was essentially U.S. policy during the first part of the Cold War. And what happened? The Arab states went and allied with the Soviet Union anyway. Nasser became a Soviet client. Bashar Assad became a Soviet client. The Ba'ath Party in Iraq became a Soviet client. The oil states didn't, but they were the only ones. Right? So now you have a situation where Israel, and, and Israel did not. Israel sort of tilted away from the communist bloc. The government of Israel had a choice between making an alliance with the communists or making an alliance with the, the religious movements. And they allied with, with the orthodox. They moved sort of away from a direction a lot of people thought they were going to go, becoming a communist state. They were still sort of a socialist state at this point. But eventually, later in the, the Eisenhower administration, you know, they became very disillusioned with Nasser. You know, Nasser invades Lebanon. Nasser destabilizes Lebanon, which was seen as a pro-Western, anti-communist ally. Nasser starts to move toward the Soviet Union. And the perception was created, and I think this perception came to dominate U.S. foreign policy after the Suez Crisis, that the Arab nationalists could not be trusted. Because the Arab nationalists, when the chips were down, when it all came out, were ultimately always going to tilt toward the Soviets. You know, particularly once Khrushchev started courting them after the death of Stalin. So if you're not going to work with the Arab states, who are you going to work with in that region? Israel, right? Israel then becomes vital to the U.S. in terms of Cold War interests. Because Israel prevents the physical unification of Egypt and Syria into a giant pro-Soviet state in the Middle East, which would have completely destabilized the region. Okay, so the United States has pragmatic reasons for choosing Israel as an ally during the Cold War. What happens over the ensuing decades is pragmatism becomes friendship. And what, what creates that friendship? Well, it's, it's common interests and common values and to a certain extent common history. Both the United States and Israel have histories of large-scale settlement. They are, to a certain extent, settler democracies, right? Democracies that where, where people have come and settled in a region from somewhere else. Both of them have these democratic elements baked in. Both of them have a, a sense of Zionism. You know, Zionism played a role in American identity. It was a different type of Zionism. It was the idea that sort of the new Jerusalem was going to be the city on the hill that John Winthrop and everybody was, was, was forming. But there was a sense of a sort of chosenness of exceptionalism in America that was also in Israel. But because that heritage of American exceptionalism came from the Puritans, from sort of Calvinist background, people who are very enamored with the Old Testament. They were complementary exceptionalisms, okay? There's also a long history of Christian Zionism in the United States that goes back 
before the formation of Zionism in Israel, of uh, uh, you know Theodore Her- Herzl. You've got Levi Parsons and the first mission to the Middle East, the first missionaries who are going over there, are hoping to convert the Jews. Right? They, they want a, a Jewish Christian state in the Holy Land. Israel has always had a fascination for Americans, and that goes back to the Protestant Reformation in England, where Israel was sort of seen as a model for the English nation and the English church. The ecclesiology of England centered around Jerusalem. The idea was that the English church was planted by Jerusalem. There was this myth that Joseph of Arimathea, after the resurrection, came to Glastonbury and converted a bunch of Druids. Historically, it was nonsense, but it was formative for the English. It was formative for their understanding of Israel. And so you combine the biblicism of the Calvinists, the sort of Jerusalem-centric ecclesiology of the Anglicans, the sense of exceptionalism and, and almost election that you got from early Americans that sort of really concentrated all of this, and the sense that there was sort of a, something special about this, this piece of land, and something special about the Jewish people in this piece of land, and that this covenant was really important. And, and that is, I would say, sort of American Christian Zionism. If you boil it down, there's a bunch of stuff that gets added about premillennial dispensationalism. That comes later. Premillennial dispensationalism as a movement antedates, comes after Christian Zionism. Right, so there are, there are these profound ties. You know, it was probably inevitable that once the alliance began, once, for pragmatic reasons, the U.S. State Department realized that Israel was actually a better bet, you know, that Israel was going to be a much more reliable ally for the United States than the Arab states were, which, which were much more interested in playing footsie with the Soviet Union, probably because the Soviets were perfectly comfortable with command and control systems and command and control countries. And, you know, the U.S., there's always that danger they're going to push you toward democracy. And probably also because the, the Soviet Union was ratcheting up the anti-colonialist rhetoric, and that was very attractive to the Arab nationalists. But because of all that, Israel's a more natural ally, right? The United States also has a long positive history with the Jews. You know, if you were Jewish and you were fleeing from Europe and you weren't going to go to Israel, you came to the United States. And that was just sort of a, a historical element that was there. And anti-Semitism in the United States exists. It is, a, it is a problem. It's never been what it has been in Europe. It's just never been that intense. So for all of those reasons, I would say friendship between the United States and Israel was logical, was inevitable, and but it grew out of sort of a pragmatic recognition that Israel was a valuable ally. Right. So by the time you see the collapse of the Soviet Union, Israel then is a, a long-term t- ally of the United States and is also sort of a friend of the United States. And then you add to that the fact that the changing dynamics of the Middle East make Islamism, radical Islam, the greatest threat the United States faces. What's one country that you never have to worry about <laughs> that being an issue? Israel. Okay, so there are a lot of reasons for the U.S.-Israel alliance. I would say it's an overdetermined outcome. Once you get past a certain point, once the Arabists' de- control of the State Department declines, once the Arab nationalists prove to be faithless allies for the United States, the pe- countries that you, you can't really make an alliance with and you can't trust, once the ties of friendship really come to the forefront, and once the threat of radical Islam replaces Arab nationalism, radical Islam is, if anything, even more oppositional to Israel. So the alliance between the United States and Israel makes more sense if radical Islam is what you're seeing as the greatest threat to the stability of the region. Why? Because Israel is never going to be a state that is susceptible to that. You may have to worry about it in other countries, and you know some people say, well, Israel's existence makes radical Islam, you know, more intense. I think that's, I think Israel is the thing that purveyors of Islamic terrorist discourse go back to when all their other arguments don't work. Islamists only talk about Israel when they're losing. When they're winning, they talk about the need to overthrow Islamic governments that they consider too pro-Western, like Saudi Arabia. Okay, so that's just a quick history of how we got here with the U.S.-Israel alliance.
And so then we turn to the Israel lobby. Okay, so if keeping all of that in mind, everything that I've said, keeping that in mind, what the Israel lobby is essentially lobbying for is a preservation of something that is natural, that makes sense, that is overdetermined, that already exists. All right, you're trying to convince the United States to go in the direction it wants to go anyway. Um, that is not a heavy lift. But the thing about, about Israel is it is a survival-oriented state. Okay, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it comes from the origin of the state from the Holocaust. You know, you have refugees from, from the Holocaust being dumped literally into ma Mandate Palestine. And so that sense of this can never be allowed to happen again. All right. We can never have a, a target uh, pounded, uh, painted on our backs. Partially, it's their security environment. You know, they don't have a lot of people who are friendly, uh, positively inclined toward them. Actually, in that sense, right now, Israel's probably never had more neighbors that don't want it destroyed than it does right now. Part of it is also just, I think there, there's something in the character that, that is, there's a sense of, of we never know what's going to come tomorrow. And so, you know, it, it was funny going to this conference and listening to the way Americans would talk about stuff and the way Israelis would talk about stuff. It actually reminds me of a joke of, you know, the uh, parents that have two kids and one who is an eternal optimist and one who's an eternal pessimist. And, you know, so they decide that they're just going to mess with their kids. And, you know, for, in, in, for Christmas morning, they put in the pessimist's room, they put all these toys, you know, every toy you could possibly want. And in the optimist's room, they put a, a big pile of manure. And so Christmas morning, they walk into the pessimist's room, and he's, he's sitting in the room dejectedly, and he's looking around, ah, oh, what's wrong, son? They say, what's wrong? Oh, well, I'm never going to have time to play with all these toys. And they walk into the optimist's room, and he's digging through the pile, and they're like, what are you doing? Something like, well... I'm sure there's a pony in here somewhere, right? Americans are always digging through the pile looking for the pony, and Israelis are always looking at the silver lining and expecting the cloud to show up. <laughs> and that just kind of comes out when you see Americans and Israelis talking and sometimes talking past each other and not understanding each other's perspectives, even though we are friends. It is an odd friendship. There are a lot of similarities, but that fundamental difference, that Americans tend toward naive optimism, particularly about the world, and hard-headed realism going toward pessimism is sort of the default for, for Israelis, based on the Israelis that I've met, based on the Israelis that I've, I've heard speak. They don't have that sort of optimism. You know, so I, I wouldn't call, call it always naive optimism, but oftentimes naive optimism that you get from Americans. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, I describe it as, as sort of a humorous buddy cop show in, in some ways, the relationship between them and how it plays out. But because of that, right, Israel recognizes that U.S. alliance is important, U.S. friendship is important, and they're going to do what they need to do, whatever it takes, to be absolutely positively convinced that there's not going to be any diminution of that. They're very, very concerned about that and very concerned about the possibility that it may fade. And I think partially they don't always understand why we support them as much as we do from a pragmatic perspective. You know, many, many of them might hear... You know, some of the arguments of people like Walt and Mearsheimer and say this, this doesn't make sense and, you know, recognize that, the, that there's a kernel of, of reality in that, you know, more, more than, than we would. And I think there are real realistic reasons for it, but it makes the Israelis nervous. And it makes the Israelis nervous because they are as dependent on that alliance with the United States as they are. You know, particularly given the hostility to Israel that has spread throughout the Muslim world and sort of metastasized from there elsewhere. Now, Israel is cultivating other allies. They're beginning, they've always sort of cultivated allies beyond the Middle East. They're beginning to try to expand those alliances and, and ties. And I think a lot of that was prompted by the Obama administration's Iran deal, which made the Israelis very, very nervous. And that might be a podcast for a different time. So, back to APAC. The American Israel Public Affairs Committee 
is very focused on, from what I can tell from this conference, bipartisan support for Israel. Right? They want support for Israel to be as broad as possible. They will work with everybody from Christian conservatives to LGBT activists. The core of it, I would say, of course, is the American Jewish community, but it's not just a Jewish issue, and it's not just a, a sort of Jewish-focused lobbying organization. They've got basically every constituency that you could possibly think of in the United States. APAC wants to have relationship with, wants to have outreach to. They do a lot of outreach to Christians, obviously, but they also have outreach to African Americans, to Hispanic Latino voters, to LGBT, to basically everybody. There is something for just about everyone at APAC, including you know people who are interested in in the Arabs and interested in a better life and a, and a better future for the Arabs. APAC is is very careful to say that they're not opposed to that. What they're opposed to is anything that they would see as threatening Israel's security. What they want. You know, ultimately, I would say Israel to live in peace with its, with its neighbors based on some of the messaging, messaging that they are putting out. And so there's this real focus on everything being very broad. They want everyone to stay very much on message, very much focused on what unites them rather than the other issues that might divide them. I would say that, if anything, it is a singular intense focus on a very, very specific set of issues. And... You know, that, I would say, is the, the real consistent message. Whatever disagreements you may have with other folks at APAC, they want you to keep those disagreements outside. And, you know, obviously, I think they're, they're effective at doing that. It is one of the more efficient, effective, well-run lobbying organizations I have seen. They had 18,000 people at this conference, and they had things very well set up to move everybody where they needed to be on the Hill, where they needed to be in terms of getting connected with the congressman, making sure that everybody was lobbying where they were supposed to be lobbying and so forth. Uh, and they had lobbying appointments with and relationships with most members of Congress. Not all. Of course, there are some that, that are going to make a specific point of, of not having that connection, that relationship, but most of them received a delegation from APAC. They don't support candidates. There are spin-off groups that do. Uh, they, they are actually kind of working on that, I think, uh, as not something that's going to be through APAC, but there, are, there were groups that were kind of showing up there trying to recruit supporters. You know, APAC's not going to discourage that, but that's not what they do. They're a lobbying organization, and of course, there are U.S. laws that separate those, those two things out. So it's not like APAC is picking certain candidates. If anything, they are very concerned about not being identified overly much with one side or the other politically. There were at least as many Democratic politicians there speaking as Republicans, if not a few more, because most of the presidential campaigns sent, sent their candidates to speak at APAC. So, you know, that was, I think, the really interesting eye-opening thing from somebody who teaches at a, an evangelical university that's within the sort of conservative Christian camp. The degree of support for Israel among the Democratic Party, the strength of that, particularly when you're hearing about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and, you know, they're, they're, they're put forward by social media as the faces of the Democratic Party on this issue. You know, I heard a lot of frustration from some of the younger freshman Democrats who are more pro-Israel, including, you know, in, in conversations with some, some folks that are closer to home here, that, you know, obviously some conversations are, are off the record, so I need to be careful, you know, who I say what about. But there was a definite undercurrent within some of the Democrats that I talked to, including, you know, de Democrats who work on the Hill, and that there's a frustration about this perception that the Democratic Party is, is anti-Israel. And that's very palpable, and that's something they very much want to push back against because they, number, for a couple of reasons, I think, number one, because it's not really true. There, there is a diversity, there's more diversity of opinion among Democrats on Israel than there used to be, but that's only because 
the Democrats used to be sort of uh, very, very lockstep pro-Israel, and now some of the younger folks are not as, as tied in with that. But they don't want, they, they are also very concerned about, you know, if the perception comes to be dominant that Israel is a Republican issue, I think that is something that would very much be concerned for APAC and would very much be a concern for those pro-Israel Democratic groups as they are, you know, fighting to maintain their position within the Democratic Party. So APAC is probably very, I would imagine, I, mean, I don't want to speak for them because, you know, it's not like I had conversations with any high-level people. And if I did, I couldn't tell you guys about it, <laughs> but I didn't. But I would imagine they're probably very happy to see Joe Biden, who is was, you know, scheduled to speak at APAC and has generally been a little bit more on the pro-Israel side than somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, you know, says he's pro-Israel, but, you know, describes Netanyahu as a racist and APAC as, as promoting bigotry and all this kind of stuff. So they're, they're probably not too dissatisfied with, you know, Ber- Bernie Sanders not performing as well on Super Tuesday. So APAC, I think, is, is an interesting group. And I think, you know, the way I look at APAC is they're sort of what the NRA, NRA used to be. The NRA used to be a bipartisan organization. They endorsed a lot of Democrats. They had support from a lot of pro-gun Democrats. But eventually those pro, pro-gun Democrats all got washed out with the tide. And now the NRA has sort of become a Republican thing. Gun control has been a, an issue that divides us in a partisan way. I would say that the APAC folks are very, very concerned about and would be a nightmare scenario for them to see Israel become a similar issue where there is a partisan divide. And so, you know, that I think it's just something to keep in mind as you're as you're watching this and you're you're seeing these things play out and listening to what the media is, is saying uh, and, and certain narratives that come out, both on conservative media and, and more liberal media, that those narratives are very much, from what I can tell, a concern for folks that are more actually active in pro-Israel work because they want to see it as an issue that crosses party lines, that brings people together across party lines. And I, you know, personally, I think that if you're looking at lobbying and how that works, there should be a lot more groups that try to operate like APAC. You know, the pro-life movement could could do with a few more Democrats. You know, it would be it would be better for us if we had more support from from Democrats. If we were more effective at reaching out beyond evangelicals and Catholics. Evangelicals and Catholics are a great base, but we need to, as pro-lifers, start doing a better job of convincing people who are not in those communities that we're right on that issue. And I think the pro-life movement, to their credit, has has tried to do that outreach. But you really need some voices on the other side of the aisle. And, you know, we do we need to start thinking about, as a pro-life movement, as a tactical matter, supporting some, finding, identifying, cultivating, and supporting pro-life Democrats, particularly in races that have more cultural, culturally conservative but reflexively Democratic voters, right? So voters who are going to vote Democratic because, you know, the Republicans have either never showed up or, you know, because they're, they're not specifically, you know, they, they have, may have some historical reasons for not supporting the Republican Party, but might be open to more of a pro-life message. Are we actually targeting those groups? Are we finding, cultivating, you know, pro-life Democratic candidates who can run in those types of heavily Democratic districts, right? Just so that we can have a more bipartisan pro-life movement, because that would be more effective, beneficial for the pro-life movement. And the pro-life movement shouldn't care about anything else. It should be singularly focused on opposition to abortion. And if opposition to abortion comes from people that don't agree with us on any other issue, well, they agree with us on that, bring them in the tent. So, you know, there's a lot that, that different groups can learn from the way APAC operates. Religious freedom movement, you know, is another example. You don't have to be religious to, to recognize the importance of religious freedom. In fact, 
if you're not religious, you should probably support religious freedom internationally. Because the only way in most societies where you're ever going to have the right to be an atheist is if religious freedom exists in that society. Most societies don't allow you to be an atheist. You have to pick a religion. And sometimes you have to show public obedience to that religion. So atheism is something that only exists because of religious freedom, which makes it ironic that you know, atheist groups have now convinced themselves that you know, religious freedom is just special pleading and we don't have to defend the rights of Christians because we don't like them and they believe things that we think are icky, so we need to be free from religion. Well, the minute you start doing that, you know, the minute you start having a state that doesn't have religion in the public square and doesn't allow for religious freedom, you know, what happens if your particular ideological slant of atheism starts to become unpopular? It is, it is a dangerous game that these groups are playing, but it's also a dangerous game because, because advocates of religious freedom and particularly Christian advocates of religious freedom, have not done a good job of making the case that this is a universal issue. We've not done a good job advocating for the religious freedom of other religious minorities. You know, we should be the first people out there saying, yes, you have a right to build a mosque in this town, even if it's majority Christian. We should be the first people out there saying, you know, you can't use these ordinances to discriminate against Sikhs or discriminate against, you know, people from these other religious groups. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to like what they believe. But the religious freedom group should be broad, movement should be broad, it should be bipartisan, it should be a consensus. And I think politically, that has, we have not been very effective at that. So there are a lot of issues on which we could stand to learn something from the way APAC operates, from the way they do business, of trying to keep your issue as nonpartisan as possible, as broad as possible, as bipartisan partisan as possible, and winning support and alliances from people who aren't necessarily natural coalition partners on everything else. You know, you don't need 80% agreement. You don't even need 20% agreement. You only need agreement on this one thing to work with people on that one thing. And you can go disagree about something else tomorrow. But when it comes to issues that are really important, we need to find allies that we can disagree with tomorrow about other stuff. You know, the, the people at the, that are being reached out to from an evangelical perspective by APAC, and the people in the LGBT pro-Israel side of, of APAC, you know, because both of those exist, they're going to have fundamental disagreements about issues of sexuality, about issues of religion, about issues uh, you know, that run the gamut on social issues, right? But they agree on this. So put those disagreements aside when you're, when you're lobbying on something. Focus on that thing. And that was kind of the APAC message, and that's effective. It is effective when you bring people together who don't agree on anything else and they come together around an issue. And that's why APAC is effective at what they do. It's not because of any sort of nefarious conspiracy theory or, you know, because of whatever else the internet is telling you about how, you know, the, the I don't know, secret Jewish death rays or whatever. The internet's a crazy place. It's not because they somehow got this stranglehold over the United States that is pushing the United States in a direction that are, that's not in its interest. It's because, number one, for a very long time, you know, they've been trying to get the, you know, you know, they've been rowing with the wind in terms of U.S. public opinion. Number two, because they're very good at getting people to put aside their differences on other stuff and focus like a laser on what they need to be focused on. And that is something that just about every political movement in the United States could, could learn a, t a thing or two from. All right, so that is going to be a wrap for today's podcast. We've covered a lot of ground on the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship on APAC itself on uh, you know, some of the, the takeaways that I had from the policy conference, and you know, on, on really looking at lobbying, looking at issue advocacy in a way that breaks it out of the partisan and polarized framework that we're in, which is often a framework that 
is to the detriment of people who are advocating for specific issues, for things like abortion, for things like religious freedom, even for things like gun rights, which the NRA used to be a lot better at this at, at this than they, they are now, and you know, that is, has been an issue for them. So thank you again for listening. Remember, you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Blind Politics and on Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte. I would say also that you can email us, but I constantly am forgetting the, uh, the email address, so possibly we will put a link to that in, in the show notes if you've got questions. I'm going to do an AMA soon. Probably not this week, maybe maybe next week or the week after, but we'll advertise that on social media a little bit ahead of time. And we may or may not get a second podcast this week. We are going to try, but there are some technical difficulties that may may come into play. This is spring break, and so there's there's a lot of things that need to happen as the semester is, is getting ready to switch over for us. We're, we're at sort of a mid-semester break. And so we'll just kind of have to see how that goes. But until then, either until Friday or until next Tuesday, Hope you have a great week. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.